0: There's no
1: business like shopping. The show must go on. Only well, there's no business like it. No business I know. no, no, no. Business. no business.
2: Hello friends and enemies, it's episode 292 of This Machine Kills, I'm Jathan, joined by Ed and producer Jeremy, as always, and uh, I'm, I'm very excited to be joined by friend of the show, but also the, the hardest working reporter in showbiz, uh, <laughs> Alex Press, you know, staff writer at Jacobin, who, I, I mean, truly Truly, Alex. No, I, th- I think nobody works harder than you. It's that it's the the irony I've seen you tweet, where like the more labor actions other people take, the more you have to work.
0: Yes, the more workers that strike, the more I seem to be uh, doing several people's jobs.
2: <laughs> <laughs> yes, absolutely. <laughs> but like, so the, and there, there is a lot. There are a lot of strikes happening and have been happening for 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 quite a while um, right now. You know. I think like like strikes that have been going on for so long, and so many of them that I think a lot of people think that they that that they're not going on anymore, right? That like, well, surely those workers have stopped striking. They either got what they wanted, or they just gave up and went back to the factory line. Um, but that, but we are seeing like some of the the long like long haul strikes, like some of the longest strikes, and various different. Uh, industries happening like concurrently than have happened in decades and I don't know if if we've really in a very long time other than some kind of you know general strike of history have we seen so many things happening concurrently with each other as well so uh, before we get into um, you know I mean, we've got a lot to get into this episode, but I think it would be really great to actually just kind of set the stage with where we are at with the various different strikes and negotiations and contracts happening across different industries.
0: Yeah, for sure. And you're right that there are a lot. So this will not be a comprehensive look. Um, though I would say, Jason, you know, just for a sense of perspective, like in our lifetimes, I mean, we're all around the same age, maybe 30-ish, um, and like, for us, it's definitely in the United States kind of the biggest uptick in labor movement activity of our lifetimes. But, it, you know, in past decades, it was like magnitudes, more workers on strike, more days lost to work stoppages. Um, and I, I hate having to start things with that sort of disclaimer. But I just really want to push against the kind of constant news cycle that thinks every strike is like unprecedented. Um, Because I think it just sets people up for like the wrong kind of expectations or understanding what a long haul fight a lot of these things will be. Um, Having said that, you know, it's we've had hundreds of thousands of US workers on strike this year. And I guess the biggest name ones, of course, would be the WGA, the writer's strike. Um, which, while small, was quite mighty, right? I mean, these are Hollywood writers; they have a loud platform and they won't shut up. Is you know, they'll they'll say this themselves that um, obviously you're going to hear a lot from them. So it was about twelve thousand workers there, um, and they struck for months. I mean, I'm sure everyone knows this, but they finally ratified a contract, um, you know, like a week or so ago or two weeks ago. Um, And that was, you know, 99% of votes in favor. So everybody was really unified throughout this strike, which was, as you said, like long haul, I mean, months of strikes. And that is like, obviously it goes without saying an incredible sacrifice. And so people didn't want to give in until they got a strong contract. And we can talk about this, some of the stuff in that contract. I mean, certainly artificial intelligence is something that people are like really interested in, certainly listeners of this show. Um, and were something that the the writers had as a real priority for regulation on that. The actors, their counterparts who went on strike in July joined the writers um, about like a month and a half after the writers went on strike. Um, That is a gigantic number of people. That's 160,000 people. Um, This is not just like celebrities, you know, famous actors, but like background performers, all kinds of people whose names you would never know are in that union, many of them making very little money, right? Um, And so they still are on strike. I think as we record this, it might be day 100 or day 101 of that strike. Um, I think what you're saying in the intro is like a lot of people saw the writers had a deal and sort of assumed the strike was over in Hollywood. But in fact, the vast majority of people on strike are still on strike. Um, And so they, you know, for the first time since they went on strike in July, they met with the studios, the uh, AMPTP, very evil organization. Um, and it's, you know, they have a Sherman Oaks headquarters that, you know, it's sort of like the Death Star, um, in, in the Hollywood landscape at this point. Um, and they met with them and there was a lot of hope, you know, that they'd just offer a deal similar to the writers and that it would be really strong and they'd want to wrap this up and get back to the fall schedule. Um, that did not happen even with like all the executives for these companies, like Ted Sarandos and like, uh, David Zaslov all these guys that unfortunately now have become recognizable names. And it's really unfortunate that people like myself have to keep part of our brain space for these names. Now Um, these guys who are just turning the industry into absolute garbage, Um, they were sitting there in the meetings and predictably that did not serve to help. And it probably actually made things more complicated. The meetings broke off. There was lots of fighting in the press, you know, the, the studios, always go to the press, especially the sort of trade rags of Hollywood that are just constantly floating their rumors and acting as kind of a propaganda arm for the studios. They went and pled their case. The actors and the actors' elected representatives said, no, this is bullshit. Um, we need a stronger contract. And so they remain still on strike. Um, so I'll pause there if I should just keep going with everything else. But I knew I would talk too long.
1: I mean... <laughs> I, oh, I- <laughs> One thing I just wanted to, you know, ask because I think um, the differences between the writer strike and the actor strike, at least in uh, the initial reasons for why they struck, I think, like as you as you pointed out, a lot of people are aware vaguely of the AI concerns and of some of the labor conditions. Um, why is it that there were no uh, meetings with AM, uh, PTP until relatively recently, whereas with the Writers Guild, it felt as if um, AMPTP was, you know, would come to the table, even if it was to basically say this deal will never, ever, ever fucking happen and you mm-hmm. guys should settle for scraps.
0: Yeah, I mean, honestly, and unfortunately, I don't know the exact answer, you know, the AMPTP squabbles in private and then just sort of presents a united front and very little information about their strategic thinking i mean people were really shocked that they they called the writers out to meet with them first Um, people sort of assumed because sag-aftra not to you know bash sag-aftra but they are a far less militant union less democratic they're sort of seen as like easier to try to push a weak deal onto than the writers guild which is very strike prone everyone knows that in hollywood um, and so people were surprised that the AMTP, AMPTP went to, um, the writers in the first place first. Um, it was sort of understood once they got the ball rolling with the writers that they were not going to call SAG-AFTRA until they had settled a deal with the WGA. Um, I think there was, there may, you know, this is totally speculation. There may be some like substantive things like how AI regulations for actors would be a lot bigger of a, a win than the sort of AI protections the writers were asking for because actors are already sort of being threatened by having their likenesses um, used and losing income because of that. Whereas the writers, you know, people really aren't already dealing with like AI written scripts. It's sort of like a looking ahead kind of protection versus the actors are like in the here and now we need this. So it might be more expensive. The other thing I want to say is that I think speculating a little bit, the, the studio bosses were incredibly mad that the actors struck. Like they always expected the writers to strike. You could say they provoked and forced the writers to strike because they thought they could win the strike. They could beat the writers at this strike or even ruin the union. They bet wrong on that. But when the actors struck, there was real like unfiltered outrage from the studio executives. Like how could we be betrayed by these people, some of whom are, you know, in their milieu are like very rich and famous people. Um, And so I think some of this might be like, punishing them for that, like a real refusal and a sort of statement of like we're we're gonna take as long as it takes to sort of beat you down, especially in the face of the writers having such a win. Um, You know, I think just to end, it's worth saying that the writers are still out on the picket lines in solidarity with the actors, just like the actors were before they struck with the writers. Um, And so, I think there's a real hope that it can be settled in in sort of a strong contract for the actors as well. Um, But as of now no idea what the the studios are willing to cave on.
2: And, and something else you said there as well, I think is a really interesting stat that the, the, the dual WGA and SAG after strike really, you know, I think rose to people's consciousness as well is the fact that there is that, that SAG after is this massive union, 160,000 people, you said. And, you know, you only really, you know, you know, a handful of those names and in, in comparison. But the fact in the mat, the fact that it is such a big union is kind of one of the, the main things on. Um, The negotiating uh, table right now, like the use of AI as a way to essentially uh, purge that union of tens and thousands, if not more of those little small background actors or bit parts or extras, people who you don't know, because if you, you know, uh, the as we've talked about on the show before, but it's worth kind of really emphasizing that this is still very much a live issue. The the idea of scanning people using AI, you know, scanning their likenesses, doing this kind of full emotion and body capture of them uh, to create these massive databases of of human actors um, that can then be used to populate movies and backgrounds and maybe even more, right? Speaking roles and things like that in the future with the idea that the studio pays you one day's worth of wage to capture a complete and total data set of you and then has total ownership and control over that data in perpetuity with no licensing, no consent, no compensation, none of that. And, and this would be absolutely devastating not only to the the workforce of like the the kind of workaday blue collar actors um but also the union itself it would like purge the union of the majority of its members
0: yeah and I mean, two things on this. One is that like, this is already a reality for some of the members. You know, they've, people are, report that they have already been asked to have their likenesses scanned and yeah, they're compensated at the day rate or half a day's rate for the hours that takes. And then they're sort of like lost in limbo. They have no real sense of where and how that data is going to be used. Even if it's not being used right now, they don't really have control over it. And this was like, on the day that the SAG-AFTRA board voted to start the strike unanimously, you know, the, the chief negotiator, uh, who has a really mouthful name, Duncan Crabtree, Ireland. Um, (laughs) he said like, this was a key issue that the studios were proposing to pay actors and performers a few hours worth of pay to have their likeness, you know, control over it forever. Um, and you know, the studios, they keep saying like, we, but we say they would need to give their consent, um, to to have that done to them, of course, what everybody says in response is like, well, an actor who really needs work, and maybe you know his role for a recurring role also comes with this clause that he has to agree to this likeness scanning. Maybe that guy is gonna take is gonna accept it even if he doesn't want to because he knows that if he says no, they will just find a more desperate actor who will agree to do that. So this is not really consent. I mean, again, it's. It's about the coercion of the of being a worker in general, right? The power your boss has over you to coerce you into things that you wouldn't otherwise want to agree to. Um, You know, I I've told this story in you know a piece I wrote out in Los Angeles, but you know I met a woman on the picket line. This woman, Stevie Nelson, who had hosted a television show on Nickelodeon for a few seasons, and it was long enough that she told me she thought you know the studio probably has enough you know, footage of her hosting a television show that she could easily imagine them using that, like training AI on that data and then having her host television shows she never hosted, saying things she never said, doing things she never did. And this is, no one would be able to tell what was real and what wasn't, right? If the, if the technology became good enough, it would just be the real Stevie arguing against the AI Stevie and no one would know who is telling the truth, Um, And so this is like really, really disturbing stuff. And people really felt like they were losing control over like their literal bodies and faces and voices. Um, And then the one other thing I would say that I think is important because like anything, the actors or the writers do also affects all the other Hollywood workers, all the other entertainment industry workers, like the teamsters and IATSE the you know, below the line workers who are like grips and electricians and hair and makeup and costume all of those workers too would be affected, right? I mean, if you suddenly have no real people in your TV show, you certainly don't need hair and makeup. Um, You don't need Mm -hmm. costumes. And so this also is, it's a real threat that sort of actually unites the various Hollywood unions because they're all kind of affected by um, what happens if the studios have total kind of control over how this technology is implemented.
2: Yeah, I I think that's actually a really nice way to talk about some of the the other unions and labor actions happening, and the fact that like none the the capitalist economy is not uh, constituted of these little like siloed warehouses where one thing happens in one sector and it doesn't spill out or affect or is influenced by other sectors. Like not the case, right? It's all interconnected. Capital has um, pretty, you know, broad-spanning and universal interest in in the in what it does. The question is more how is it doing it on the ground in specific places but like when we're talking about things like ai capture and losing the your likeness you know and be, you know not only being automated out of a job right which is a really kind of classic concern um uh, in the the struggle between labor and capital and something that you know i i've i've talked about and written in some of my work that right like late capital is always on this like infinite that this mission to create a perpetual value machine Right, like something that can produce infinite value without having any kind of human labor input, um, because the you know cap- capital needs labor, but it hates the fact that it needs labor, and so the 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 idea of like you know people's likenesses being captured, it reminds me a lot as well of work by. Um, A scholar, Alessandro Delfonti, who has written about Amazon warehouses and has a great book called The Warehouse. And in that, he's come up with this concept drawing from like the Italian autonomous Marxist of what he calls machinic dispossession, right? A kind of dispossession where the Amazon warehouse, through like the handheld scanner guns and other sensors and surveillance systems. Are you know not only um, disciplining and controlling workers, but at the same time capturing reams and reams of data about the workers that can then be used to train systems to automate um, or oversee workers, right? And so it's it's interesting to see these same kinds of things and those ideas of like machinic dispossession come out of like the theorization of the uh, of the. Automotive industry in like the 60s and 70s by a lot of these Marxists. And so you talk about like the kind of, you know, I, I like that you really gave us that that historical disclaimer at the beginning that this seems unprecedented now, these labor actions, but they're not. And they were actually much bigger and much uh, longer and broad, you, you know, broad sector um, in the past, but also a lot of the same, it, it does feel like a lot of the same live um, concerns right now, and especially ones that are very technological and seem like they are on the cutting edge and the frontiers of innovation and accumulation are also really, really familiar um, in in a lot of ways. And, Maybe drawing a direct connection here between um, the the past and the present, and kind of labor and capital, technology, and the reactions to it. It does seem like the the um, the stand up strikes happening at with the UAW is a really good place to move now because they are that's really at the center as well quite explicitly with sean fain talking about it in react in response to the kind of sit-down strikes of the past um and also i remember watching his uh his, his amazing speech on kind of uh, laying out this history and the strat- the tactic of the stand up strike um and and in the background behind him is a uh is a, pla- a poster uh about automation and and you know labor kind of Reacting to the the uh, detrimental effects of automation, so it's like it's all it was like quite literally this like specter looming over his right shoulder is the is is automation. Um, and so, could you could you talk about the kind of the UAW strikes and but also that that connection as well with history?
0: Yeah, and I'll just say you know that poster you're referencing was from the UAW's national archives, so this was a poster they used in the past when you know famously the assembly line. I mean, we talk about the assembly line. Actually, it's funny on the picket line outside of Paramount Studios, I spoke to a writer who described the new mini rooms that they're subjected to, you know, one showrunner and then a bunch of short-term contract writers trying to cobble together a TV series. She described it as like being on assembly line, right? And so of course we all reference that the assembly line in auto was where this fight kind of is most famous as far as, Technology being used to really turn workers into an appendage of the machine rather than the machine being a thing that could sort of help or assist a worker. Um, and, you know, I just, two things before I, I sort of give the the lay of the land on the UAW strike. Um, one is that, you know, I want to second Alessandro's book, The Warehouse, is really great um, as far as Amazon stuff. I mean, it, and really accessible and great use of like political theory, like Marxist analysis, onto and incredible interviews with the workers in the warehouses. Um, and then the way I often, I now I find myself saying this a lot because there's so many conversations going on around like tech and labor organizing. Um, I often quote Big Bill Haywood, um, the sort of legendary labor leader, um, who said something along the lines of, and maybe it's been sort of a, over the years changed a little bit, but he said something like, the manager's brain is under the workman's cap. And the, all the goal of technological innovation in the hands of capital has been to find a way to literally to extract, to change that equation. How can he get the work? (laughs) What if the manager's brain, he didn't need the worker's brain anymore. Um, He actually had somehow extracted all that knowledge. Um, And that used to be sort of fanciful and sort of a fruitless endeavor. And that's where sort of skilled trades could like defend their, their sort of monopoly on this knowledge. Now with some of these technologies, I mean, Alessandra is right that like the warehouse at Amazon is like kind of the prime example of where, the data being collected all the time from the workers leads the actual the manager to be the only one who actually understands what's going on now while workers are sort of um, groping in the dark and just sort of following what the algorithm tells them to do. Uh, But I think that's really a useful way to understand how capital tends to try to implement technological advancement. Um, So all of that aside, now the UAW strike, I mean, Sean Fain, is a really an impressive labor leader, I think, in the United States, uh, really remarkable. Um, and I'm sure people have sort of seen a bunch of his speeches or like know a little bit about him. Um, and he, he very explicitly called this a stand-up strike with reference to the sit-down strikes in Flint, um, which in Flint, Michigan, at the giant Ford uh, NGM complexes um, that basically created the UAW, right? So workers, instead of walking off the job, they sat down inside the plants and refused to move. Uh, There are great photos of them like reading newspapers, drinking coffee on the like assembly line as they count the days on a chalkboard, like day 20, day 21. Um, And they won a, a real strong victory and they built their union and they also inspired a lot of people. So to your point about these things are not separate, both on the side of capital and on the side of labor, right? Like I strike in one sector, can lead to a contagion effect right you see workers win and you realize like oh this is not this is an idea maybe in the united states i've never encountered before that like me and my coworkers actually could get more than our boss says um by just trying to call his bluff um and so that inspires people right and on capital side of course it's the same thing if there is you know if sort of secular changes in the labor market or like the capital investment market whatever um lead to certain strategies of workers or i mean of is going on the offensive, whether they're trying to, you know, push concessions on workers or make use of certain technologies to undermine unions. You know, they will often be going on offensive at the same time in different sectors. So I think we see that with auto, where you know a big part of the fight in the UAW is around the use of electric vehicle plants. Um, so this is like a good thing. We want less environmentally polluting cars. That's a necessity at the very least, and probably far from sufficient. Um, But the auto industry, of course, is using this moment where the Biden administration is helping push them, give them subsidies and tax incentives to build those plants to also undermine the union and undermine workers, right? They've managed to get it so that those those plants are not unionized. The workers there make like the equivalent of what you'd make at McDonald's for incredibly like both arduous and at times very um, unsafe work with various chemicals. Um, and so they're using this to sort of implement a future where there is no UAW, right? The future is EV, and the future is union free. Um, and so that's a big part of what this fight at the UAW is about. Um, I mean, and just to be clear, the stand up strike has been really interesting. You know, now Sean Fain is doing it, where if one of the big three automakers kind of doesn't move enough at the bargaining table, he'll just walk out of the room and call up the head, you know, of the local of the plant he wants to strike. And he will say, like, walk everybody off the floor. And just, like, within minutes, that new plant is on strike. This is what happened at the Ford, Kentucky plant, which is a giant plant. I think it's, like, 9,000 workers there. Um, that was the latest uh, new plant to walk off the job. And it's a very profitable, very important plant um, for Ford. And, yeah, it was just uh, Ford, he said, basically made the same offer they'd made before. And he said, well, you just lost yourself the the truck plant in Kentucky. And that was that. Um, so it's like a really, it's, it's unique and it's, you know, the, the UAW is proving that it is like an innovator of strike strategy as it was when the founding of the sit sit down strikes.
2: It's it. I mean, it's unique. It's 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 powerful. It's extremely cool to, to yeah. do that as well. <laughs> yeah, it's
0: just like cool, which is very important, actually.
2: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the cool yeah. factor is important for sure, and and it really, I think, it shows as well. Like to be able to do that requires having a powerful union, right? It requires having a union that is highly coordinated, but also a union that. Has a a a lot of trust uh, up and down the ranks, right? Where people are willing to um, actually act on those calls. Um, that you know, that it does not take um, you know days or weeks to ramp up to that or to convince people this is you know the right thing to do. You know, it, it, it is actually really, I think, indicative of how strong the UAW has. Um it, it is right now as a as a union,
0: yeah, I mean, we'll see. like, so the strike is still going on. None of the big three have gotten a tentative agreement with the UAW yet. Um they've all been still progressing. you know, they're now all are offering raises of over twenty percent. I think they're all offering twenty three percent at this point over the course of the contract., uh, you know, the UAW came out swinging. Sean said, hey, our members need to make up for decades of concessionary contracts and and horrible kind of wage stalling. Um, And they wanted like 40%. um, So they're not there yet. But, you know, this in itself, I think is really remarkable. Not to like tamper down expectations, but like when do you ever hear of people getting 23% raises? Well, this year you hear of it a lot, actually. I mean, the Teamsters also won this for a lot of their UPS drivers. The writers and the actors might win significant raises. Like this is really a moment where we are seeing people actually able to, to go on the offensive in that way. And that's what then gives the UAW the kind of credibility to say, you know what, we need it too. Um, and actually, we're going to go even farther. So I think it's an interesting like feedback loop that happens when workers actually go on the offensive. Um, you know, that said, like, it's 150,000 workers, And, you know, a strike is not easy. And so I, you know, I, I'm very hopeful that they're going to get strong contracts at all three, I think they've already run one, some big concessions, including at one company, the agreement that EV plants will be unionized going forward, which was nobody thought they could win that and they did because actually if you're just strong enough, you can win whatever you want. Um, And so, I mean, it's a very encouraging moment for
1: sure. With these sorts of larger shifts, I mean, are there, is there much that can be done to support? Like what does solidarity or, you know, in your experience, what does solidarity look like? Is it, you know, continuing to support or trying to find ways to support striking workers? Is it trying to apply pressure to, you know, change the legal landscape, uh, so that, um, it's a bit easier to strike or so that, um, it's not so easy for regu- for, um, employees to retaliate. I mean, like, what are so, like some of the ways in which th- these moves and these steps can be, you know, extended further? Does it just come down to they have, they went winning or even, even in a loss, um, it emboldens other workplaces and other activists and, and people can learn lessons from these campaigns to then take them to other workplaces?
0: Yeah. I mean, there's a few answers, right? Like, and it also depends who's asking, you know, of course I, I wish many of us wish we could just change the law just like that. I think what yeah. we've seen is that in America, like the, we know this, that the, the, yeah. the laws do not follow pop, you know popular wishes. Um, right. But what we have seen is that with some of these strikes and again, even not at historically high Levels of strikes just like significantly high for the past decade. We've already seen laws start to follow in the wake of demonstrated need by workers, right? So in California, you know, there was this rush by the Democratic Party in California to, you know, put together a bill that would allow striking workers to access unemployment benefits, um, which is something that only New York and New Jersey recently implemented. Otherwise, you are not eligible um, for unemployment while you're on strike. And that was something that absolutely there was no interest in doing in California until you had 200,000 workers who were like, Hey, I've been on strike for four months and I'm now going to, I'm living out of my car. Um, and all of a sudden those their representatives felt like they, it's not that they suddenly had a change of heart. They just like realized they were under pressure, um, to fill this obvious problem that they just hadn't, hadn't been forced to see because there hadn't been big strikes before that demonstrated it. Um, you know, and there have been other things like that as well. Whether it's like strike benefits and foods and food stamps and things for strikers, or if we're talking about like ret- protections against retaliation, um, this is another area that, like, you know, as much as the Biden's NLRB is like, you know, surprisingly good, they also can't enforce a lot of the things that they rule on. You know, their penalties are drop in the bucket for say a constant labor violator like Starbucks or Amazon. Um, and so if there were pushes based on a constant, <laughs> unfortunately workers just constantly have to show like, Hey, we're all getting fired here, um, to create that kind of pressure. Unfortunately, I think there's just no way around that as far as the legal landscape. Um, of course the other pat answer is like, it helps workers when you to organize r- whatever your sector, right? Like a stronger labor movement, a stronger union, more unions, more militant unions, anywhere helps everybody everywhere. Um, Sometimes it's quite literal, like, you know, the UAW, for instance, has a growing pretty significant wing of grad student unions. And like, not only do those students help with, you know, I've seen them help with the organizing internally, you know, they were a big part of pushing for reform in the union. And they'll, you know, a grad student can help an auto worker with like, Drafting the language for a resolution, you know, I saw a Harvard grad student say, "Like I'm a nerd." Basically, she's like, "Of course, I can help you with this." Uh, but quite literally, those workers' dues are going to auto workers who are now on strike, um, and so in that way, obviously, it's quite concrete how these things help in one another. And then, of course, the last thing is like, yes, everybody should be donating, should be on picket lines, um, should be doing any kind of support. You know, various organizations have more you know, sort of extensive support, whether it's like food, whether it's aid there. I know DSA at one point was like, I think, canvassing car dealerships around the strike um, and sort of putting pressure on the customers to like stand with the workers. Um, And of course, car dealers are like uh, evil (laughs) quite often. They're like the worst, most ferocious wing of capital. Um, And so that's just like in itself, I think a really interesting way of like targeting different parts of the supply chain. Um, and so there's all of that that goes on. So that's many answers. But I think, unfortunately, it takes it's taking all of these things. And, you know, the, the, the good upside is like it really does seem like all hands on deck. People are realizing this is a moment where we still have a tight ish labor market. We still have people who have been kind of pushed and radicalized by the pandemic into having less fear um, feeling like there's nothing left to lose, and so we we're trying to make use of it and seize this moment um so it is gonna have to be all of these things at once and
2: and I mean to that as well, it seems like the at the the bare minimum thing you can do is to to not do something right not cross a picket line yeah um, when when you ever come across one and and uh it it was it's been it was a while back ago now that you wrote um Uh, a Profiles of Cowardice (laughs) uh, Uh piece that really spoke to me as an academic. And also I was on strike um, two weeks ago with the with the union at my university because we've been in a uh, over a year now, um, hardball negotiating for a new enterprise bargaining agreement, which is our contract here at the university. And so the National Tertiary Education Union that covers the whole university sector in Australia, um, there's been a number of strike actions at different universities and my university went on strike a couple of weeks ago for, um, for this, um, and so it really spoke to me as well, Hit, personally, when you wrote this piece. I think it was on uh, about the uh, American Political Science Association. Their big annual conference was happening at a hotel in Los Angeles where the workers were on strike. And they were pretty unabashed about crossing the picket line saying, we're still going ahead with this. Um, I don't know. I know this was a while back ago now, but could you, do you, very you'll briefly remember the yes. the kind of circumstances here and 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 this is a, a real perfect uh a, a case study of what not to do
0: <laughs> yes um yeah this was not academia's finest moment um though there are many such moments in academia it's one reason i didn't stick around very long in grad school myself um and so, so Unite Here Local 11 represents tens of thousands of hotel and hospitality workers in Southern California, you know, Los Angeles and the sort of surrounding area. And they've been waging this incredibly hard fought strike there um, against, you know, 60 or so um, hotel properties uh, who bargained together in a sort of formation that's similar to the MPTP really um, as a way of understanding it. And, you know, the, the hotels were not budging. They were being extremely vehement about not accepting any of the proposals that the hotel workers were advancing for this new contract. And so the the Unite Here Local 11 started doing rolling pickets, right? So this is, it's not unlike the stand-up strike, you know, in a way. It's not quite as like, it's a very different kind of formulation, but it is a way that they can have sort of workers at one or two or three hotels go out for a few days, sort of sustain this strike for the longer term. And also has an element of surprise, right? Like hotels don't know where they're going to strike next. Um, and so that is the context in which APSA, the political scientists had scheduled to have their conference um, on, believe it or not, Labor Day weekend, um, which really <laughs> meant they were be- going.
2: I, I didn't know. I didn't realize that detail of it, which is a real yes. just fucking salt in the wound obliviousness.
0: <laughs> yes, it was that. And so... Um, the, a bunch of the conferences, both like academic panels and things, as well as like block booking of hotel rooms for attendees were at the JW Marriott, um, which was one hotel that had of course not signed any ten of agreement with the workers. So it was a struck property and, you know, APSA expected, usually there's around 6,000 attendees. So it's a pretty big conference. Um, and the hotel workers had been asking any conferences or organizations that had booked, before the strike started to cancel the reservations and move either online, move to a different property. There was one hotel in Los Angeles that had reached an agreement and had kind of broken away with the from the other hotels. So they were encouraging them to give them their business. You know, do not cross a picket line is basically what they said. And I want to be clear here. I mean, this is one thing that I think a lot of the, the members were really embarrassed to realize upon seeing that APSA was going to go forward with this plan was that, It's not like only radicals or other labor unions decided to respect this picket line. Um, You know, organizations that respected it and changed their bookings included the Council of State Governments, the Japanese American Citizens League, the W.K. Kellogg Foundation, and the television show Vanderpump Rules. This is just, just normal it's normal to not cross a picket line.
2: (laughs) Alex, to be fair, those are all bedrock labor institutions in in the U.S.
0: (laughs) I do often say Vanderpump rules is one of the greatest shows about work in America. (laughs) So, (laughs) uh, but so this is, you know, the organization said like, Oh, it would be too expensive. We would lose all this money, which of course then quickly members realized that probably wasn't even the case because they had clauses in their contracts about respecting labor actions. Um, They also really, I think, went over the line and and triggered a lot of backlash from people who maybe wouldn't have been so vocally opposed to this in the membership by saying that actually they were doing this because to cancel it last minute would really particularly harm like the most marginalized members, like whether it's early career and grad students, people from the global south, people of color And of course, all of these scholars then very quickly became the first to say, I'm not going. Are you kidding me? Uh, Many of them said, you know, I actually, you know, some of these grads, some of these members have organized grad unions with Unite Here. Um, And so they literally were like, this is my union. Of course, I'm not crossing. And hotel workers funded that campaign, right, with their dues. So they're like, they did more for me in my academic career than any of you ever did at APSA. Um, so yes, it was a real profiling cowardice. APSA made some changes. They said, we now are in compliance. You know, the union very publicly said they did not. Um, they said, this is not adequate. It's not what we asked for. And the conference did go on in a very, I'm sure it must've been the most, I mean, academic conferences are always pretty depressing affairs, I gather. Um, <laughs> but I think this probably would have been one of, because, you know, admirably, I think probably the majority of attendees canceled on their own, of course, because APSA didn't do this organizationally. It meant that the everybody had to take the hit on their own as far as whether it was like lost flight money or hotels or whatever. Um, you know, there was some organizing at the sort of lower level to help young scholars who were kind of taking a hit on this. But, you know, the people that went, I'm sure it was it was a tiny conference full of like empty chairs, right? And you're crossing a picket line to get there on Labor Day. I mean, I can't even imagine, you know, and I think young scholars did make the point that, you know, there was a jobs fair being held as well, which always happens at these academic conferences. And they're like, what lesson are we teaching young scholars, but that to advance your career in academia requires like crossing the picket line of low wage workers? Um, which I think actually is an accurate lesson about how to advance your career in academia, but maybe they didn't want to advertise it so openly.
2: (laughs) I have long said, and, and will say for as long as it's true, that most academics are aspirational middle managers. Um, they want to, they want to be like heads of departments or deans of faculty, like these real actual, like literal middle management positions in a corporate university. And that's, and so you, you don't, uh, you don't see yourself as, um, a worker in, in any like real material way. Um, you maybe have like theoretical solidarities with the afflicted classes, but that's, but that's not you when the rubber hits the road.
0: Right. And I'll just say, because I mean, it really is like of relevance to this show's particular interest in tech. Part of why I was a bit incensed over this was that I had just written a piece like a few days prior to this news coming out that APSO wasn't canceling the conference. i had written a piece about one of these hotel workers, um, this guy, Thomas Bradley, who actually was not a member of the union. He was working. He was picking up shifts through something called InstaWork, which is one of these like gig apps where you can get jobs. They'll post like, Hey, this hotel needs a bartender for eight hours who can pick up this shift. Um, Thomas Bradley is a black guy who has worked in the hospitality industry for decades, but never been able to secure a full-time job with benefits. Um, And he showed up, he picked up a shift. Uh, He arrived at this particular hotel and was greeted by the picket line and realized he was being employed as a a strike breaker, a scab. Um, He being a very righteous person, refused to cross the picket line, joined it, um, you know, was penalized in automatically on the app, and then also had other shifts canceled for that week. Um, and, you know, I think the, the thing that really inspired me about this, not just Thomas's, you know, admirable actions, but this, the workforce themselves then actually continued their strike longer than planned, you know, the sort of rolling strike to protest what had been done to Thomas Bradley and demand that he was given a firm, permanent job at the hotel. And this is not just admirable in the abstract, but Thomas is black and almost the entire workforce was Mexican, was Latino. Um, And black people in Los Angeles have kind of been systematically kicked out of hotel jobs. And so this was a real I think this is exactly the kind of labor movement I I admire and love. One that said, like, we we know that black workers get used as scabs um, and we don't accept it and we're not going to let it happen um, and we'll stand with him. So I think it was really admiring. And Thomas himself really suffered for it, right? Um, and then to wake up, I think I was on my flight, getting my flight back from LAX to, to the East Coast when I saw that Appso was going to do this. And I was like, come on. I mean, Thomas, he's homeless and living out of his car at one point and still wouldn't cross a picket line. Like, what excuse do academics have? Um, so uh, just the, the addendum to that is that, um, you know, the NLRB has warned about these InstaWork, these gig apps, um, that they basically automate labor violations, right? He should not have been penalized and they can go in and unpenalize him, you know, reinstall his account. But the fact that it automatically penalizes people for protected rights, um, the NLRB has been warning, you know, this is, this is going to be a huge problem. And actually I think they have now launched Thomas's case. You know, they, Unite here filed a complaint over this, um, with the NLRB. And I think the NLRB is planning to now use it as, um, the kind of test case to possibly, you know, end the use of all of these apps, right, to make them actually illegal in principle, and and sort of undo the business model before it's, you know, too late, basically. Um, So I was very glad to see that Thomas's case was getting used for this purpose.
2: Absolutely. And that's, that's exactly what's needed with this because I mean, that is the whole business model of all of these platforms and apps is uh, automating regulatory arbitrage, right? Like you kind of yes. automate late, uh, you know, um, legal violations and you do it at scale. You blame an automated system for doing it and say, Oh, well, a person can come and, and reverse it. Well, as you said, it should have never happened in the first place. And Thomas is not a, uh, a, a, an anomalous case here, right? Like this is the whole point of these apps is to automate, uh, regulatory arbitrage at such a scale that it forces a, either a change in the law, um, or it forces a, uh, a kind of an exemption for for Ooh. for their operation and whether it's Instawork or Instacart or Uber or Airbnb like that's what all like that that is the 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 business model here so it's really it's really good and and promising as well to see a, a case like thomas's really be raised up by the union as a test case for for legal action
0: yeah and i got to say i mean i sh- thomas sent along like the message he started organizing other users on the app to say like don't cross the picket lines and you know it was a, it, it was a hard thing to argue because a lot of them i saw these messages they were like we're going to get kicked off the app. I need this job. Like, and he was like, no, no, you can get reinstated, blah, blah. blah. And they're like, there's no guarantee that that will happen. And maybe by the time it happens, you know, it'll be too late for me. I'll have like been evicted from my house or whatever. Um, and they're correct. Right. They were actually, I think this is part of like really substantiating the case that the point of this is to make it so feel like so overwhelmingly a done deal that there's just no point in resisting. Um, and you should just scab. Um, And so, and this is like, yeah, it's very insidious.
2: Yeah. And it's the, it's the, the, the baked in asymmetry here where capital might, at the end of the day, you know, the company might get punished for, for what they did, but they can bear that punishment and they can, and they can bear the, you know, the appeals process or the legal process or whatever, what happens, but the workers can't bear the a a wrong termination or a wrong rejection even if they were morally and legally in the right and they will be given their day in court and reinstated eventually well that most people don't have the ability to bear um the eventual justice that, that they are due
0: Which I feel like is a good way to bring us to Starbucks and Palestine. Uh, Because speaking of people who are getting fired left and right for uh, ludicrous reasons and hoping to get reinstated, Starbucks
2: workers are like... 100%. Our favorite coffee shop. Mm Mm-hmm. I think that's exactly right because we were talking about what can we do to stand in solidarity with the labor actions and, and work and militant worker movements. And um, of course we need to say, what can we do to stand in solidarity with Palestine? And uh, I think is what we are seeing as well as there's a real intersection here that uh, one of the things I really want to talk to you about Alex is that like how these labor movements we've been talking about are themselves organizing in solidarity with palestine um and so could you could you the the starbucks uh workers union statement um i think was really uh such a, a an impressive Thing that I saw on this recently, and I know they're not the only ones. But could you kind of lay out what what is the Starbucks workers' movement doing in solidarity with Palestine, and maybe expand out from there to talking more generally about other um, solidarity movements between labor and Palestine?
0: Yeah. So this this particular flare up about at Starbucks. Then I'll get to the sort of other things and broader international solidarity. But you know the so the attack on Israel by Hamas happens on October 7th on October 9th, the Starbucks workers United account shares a tweet that says solidarity with Palestine. And it's that image that, you know, everyone saw of the bulldozer tearing down a fence, um, on the Gaza sort of, uh, enclosure, the Gaza open air prison. Um, and so they tweet this, which as you said, is very brave. Um, You know, I mean, I'm the last one to be like calling a tweet brave. I mean, I think that's really corny. But like it is Palestine solidarity is the third rail, not just in our countries like politics broadly or abstractly, but in the labor movement and in matters of like workplace freedom of speech being stifled. Right. We're seeing that left and right now. So many people are getting fired or disciplined or censured for speaking out in solidarity with Palestine or criticizing Israel even a little bit. Um, so for these Starbucks workers to do this from the official union account, as like one of the most high-profile union efforts right now, I think was very admirable. And now, I mean, it becomes incredibly ludicrous because Starbucks responds by saying it is going to file a lawsuit, which it has now filed um, against the union for this is something that other other companies have actually done this past year. It's like a new strategy they're all using, where they're saying that because the name Starbucks Workers United And this logo they use looks so much like the Starbucks proper logo and name that customers will get confused and think that Starbucks supports Hamas. This is basically what they said in like their statements around that. And this is causing like immense reputational damage as if anyone thinks Starbucks is like uh, supporting Palestinian liberation. Um, And so they're filing this case. And then the really, I mean, the actually genuine, I can't even believe I'm going to say this sentence on a recording, but... Uh, The Chamber of Commerce reporting came out that the Chamber of Commerce, sorry, let me restate that, the Chamber of Commerce had first called on Starbucks's leadership um, to close stores that were unionized in response to this statement, Um, you know, to actually penalize them excessively, even by Starbucks's standards, which has been violating labor law left and right, um, in response to the statement. And Starbucks basically, at least the reporting says, them this would be like too illegal basically but they would agree (laughs) they would agree to file this lawsuit and the chamber at least briefly launched a boycott which surely did not get off the ground because i've only seen it mentioned in this one article reporting on it what that the slogan was going to be it was going to be a boycott of starbucks stores under the line drinking a cup of starbucks coffee is like is like drinking a cup of jews blood uh which I'm not kidding.
2: I, I, and saw I, I, I saw something about this on Twitter and I, yes. I had no fucking idea what it was in response to. And I was like, something has gotten like, like broken containment from 8chan or something. Like yeah. what is happening here?
0: It is like the... I mean, you, you sort of have to add it to the Chamber of Commerce. They are willing to just do the most outlandish maximalist kind of like responses to things like you almost wish labor was going to be this crazy sometimes <laughs> um, but of course you know so starbucks was, took the reasonable middle ground of like they're suing their own union workers and stuff but i mean this is it really speaks to like this the genuine what i said about like palestine is the third rail and has been for many decades in this country um, you know we talk about like freedom of speech or like, you know, job sort of retaliation for certain protected activities. I mean, for decades, scholars have been fired incredibly quickly, swiftly, undemocratically at times, like, you know, violating their own contracts or tenure
2: for speaking up. I mean, ten, I was going to say tenured academics have yes. been fired for speaking in solidarity with Palestine. And that, and tenure is supposed to be the thing that makes you like untouchable.
0: Yeah, Um, And so and I'll just say, you know, I feel the need to say that, you know, the first thing I ever wrote for a publication like eight years ago was about the chilling of speech on campuses by precarious employment, whether it's adjuncts or whatever. I talked about like the case of Steve Salata, who is this famous kind of early case canary in the coal mine, you know, well over a decade now where he was unceremoniously fired um, and very much vilified for being on the side of Palestine. Um, And now, I mean, truly, we're seeing it left and right. I mean, Palestine Legal, which kind of helps people in these moments, says they've never seen anything like this number of cases before. And that it's particularly like, I think it's worth noting, um, my friend who's a staff attorney there mentioned that it's like much more racist. It used to be that like Jewish people also would get, uh, you know, backlash or retaliated against for expressing solidarity with Palestine. And right now it's like, They said all their cases pretty much are Muslims, Arabs, people of color, black people, like it's an extremely racist backlash happening. Um, And so I want to get to like the broader thing going on, which is, you know, it's worth saying that there are a couple things people can do as workers, as members of the international working class here. You know, first and foremost, like the Palestinian trade unions for a long time have had certain asks of workers in other unions, many of which shamefully uh, most of the American labor movement has never lived up to the demands that they asked for. Um, so they released another statement, the Palestinian trade union federation on October 16th um, calling on trade unions to take action, to halt the arms trade to Israel. Um, so this means both like taking action in the sense of refusing to build these weapons, which of course I think just, it's going to take a lot of pressure to get you know, workers in these industries anywhere near that. Um, but you know, we do have a history in the United States at least of um, you know dock workers and um, longshoremen uh, refusing to to unload and load any arms destined for Israel and actually anything at all at times right in in respecting what's called the BDS movement right um, and so that is another thing that the Palestinian like civil society not just trade unions has been calling for for twenty years um, you know I I'm part of an organization that by the time this goes. Uh, live, I'm sure we'll have will be public of you know culture workers, writers against the war, and part of that is reendorsing, reaffirming that we will abide by BDS, um, which comes with consequences for a lot of people in the United States. I mean, certain people in public sector jobs in certain states actually they basically can get fired unceremoniously for being a supporter of BDS. Um, but these are the kind of things you need to do um, at this moment. You know, the Palestinian trade unions have also called on. People to pass motions in their locals if they're not in the arms trade uh, or arms industry um, that, you know, affirm Palestinians' right to resist, things like that. I mean, you can just Google Palestinian trade unions, um, call October 16th, and see the exact language here if you'd like. Um, but there's also a particular ask for United States workers to do everything in their power to stop the United States funding um, the war on Gaza. Um, and I think there's a particular responsibility we have, um, to do that. I mean, the risks for us are minuscule compared to the risks that Palestinians are experiencing right now. Um, and so, I mean, I think it's really brave of Starbucks workers to do this. I also mentioned that, um, Brandon Mencia, who's one of the newly elected UAW members, um, he, he's the leader of region nine. Um, so like New York, he's my, he leads my region. Um, he made a statement that was, you know, very much saying like, I oppose, like, we need to stop providing infinite money and arms for a, I don't know if you used the word occupation or a genocide or apartheid, um, and also said he will stand with anyone who's experiencing retaliation for voice and criticism of Israel. Um, you know, this is why a new leadership matters in unions. It really, that is a very, you know, the UAW had Arab caucus of workers that were very pro-Palestine in the past, and they were really vilified within the union, I think we're seeing, again, this new energy in the labor movement also means finally having some leaders who are willing to kind of stick their necks out here um, and do the right thing. So that's all stuff that workers can be doing. And and U.S. workers, I think, especially have this, you know, not just endorsing BDS, not getting state, just getting statements through your union, but actually doing everything we can in our power um, to stop the United States from funding what is now very clearly, um, you know, a mass murder, a genocide. So. Um, Like I said earlier about the moment, us having to seize it. Unfortunately, there are many things we have to do at the moment. Um, So but I'm I'm looking forward to seeing what people are going to do now that I've seen workers be so much more willing to fight back um, and go on the offensive. Hopefully that can translate in some way.
1: Yeah, you know, those sort of, you know, the worker involvement, especially with um, tech industry and, you know, or attempts by tech workers to intervene, is, I think would especially be valuable. I mean, you know, a, a huge chunk of the genocide and the apartheid state is reliant on, you know, these high technology exports, the attraction of foreign capital and venture capital, Um to support, you know, startup industry and a tech industry that's largely centered and organized around surveillance of Palestinians, experimentation on ex- Palestinians, training these weapons, selling the weapons and uh, surveillance platforms and innovations that come out of them back to other companies, countries and working with like big tech firms and our big tech firms to develop. Uh, infrastructure that powers all of these tools, these high-tech tools of, uh, of murder and surveillance, right?
0: This event Ed and I did recently um, for Brian Merchant's book um, about Luddites, um, which was very fun. I'm sure you talked about it. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure you talked a lot about it. Um, but, you know, one of the last things that was brought to the stage to consider before the panel was an HP laptop. And it immediately reminded me, obviously, because the war had just begun, um, but one of the first like pro-Palestine actions rallies I ever went to, you know, over a decade ago in Boston targeted the HP kind of like headquarters in Boston um, as, you know, HP is a key part of the, they sell the software that is used at Israeli checkpoints um, that Palestinians are subjected to, you know, constant not just tedium and time consumption, but also like incredible humiliation, degradation, and violence at those checkpoints. And so we targeted, it, and it was very controversial. This idea that you know BDS is controversial in itself, and certainly sort of like direct actions um, vilifying I think certain companies for their complicity and assistance in apartheid, you know, is still controversial. But that is exactly the kind of thing we need to do. And and so just to your point, like there are companies with actual addresses and with workers at them um, that need to be targeted, I think, um, for their very real assistance um, in this project. It's not just like the U.S. state um, abstractly or just like arms manufacturers that are aiding in this. There are all these much more insidious um, ways that people are assisting in this project um, that re- does rely on yeah U.S. workers and U.S. technology quite quite explicitly.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And, and you know, talking about how difficult and at times, uh, you know, taxing, uh, you know, personally and emotionally and financially it can be to stand in solidarity with with Palestine, with labor movements, with people who deserve our solidarity and our support. You know, I, I will say as well that like, you know, it, it's, it's most taxing when it's done alone, right? Doing it in in collective with other people, um with organizations, whether it's, you know, uh, you know, informal groups or uh or unions or whatever it might be, it makes it a lot easier to bear the brunt of state of the solidarity and support that's necessary, but it also makes that solidarity and support much stronger and much more forceful as well. And so this is, this is not something that is like, you you know we all as uh as 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 islands unto ourselves need to go stand you know stand out on our individual street corners and <laughs> and you know and shout in solidarity it's like no it, it, require, so it, it requires no you're welcome to
0: do that too of course. Yeah, you, course you are welcome to do that i will not stop you <laughs> that's all. what you feel like doing you know whatever gets you. Yeah. Anyway.
2: Uh, for sure i won't stop you but i will say it's a lot easier it's a lot more powerful um it's a lot uh it's 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 and it's it's more enjoyable as well to be like with a bunch of people who also are doing it with you right you don't you are not alone um it, it helps to combat the just like uh the rightful uh, overriding sense of dread um, that is constantly lurking us, but I think it, it really helps to combat that sense of dread, but also that sense of um, it's an unmovable force, right? That like yeah. you can't do anything about it. Um, you can't do anything about capital. You can't do anything about genocide. You can't do anything to support people who need support in this world. Um, the, the way to actually conquer that sense that it's pointless while also showing that there is a point um, is to do it together.
0: Yeah. And just two quick things here. I mean, I'm sure listeners will have seen some of the photos or videos, I mean, of the protests in the United States, particularly worth pointing out, given that we fund this war. Um, But I mean, all around the world, these protests in solidarity with Palestine, calling not just for a ceasefire, but for an end to the occupation, um, that creates all of these problems in the first place. I mean, have been historic. I mean, we're talking hundreds of thousands of people. I mean, you couldn't move in some Bay Ridge in Brooklyn yesterday, and mm-hmm. you know, the, in New York also the night before in Midtown. You know, these are these are Allstone. giant protests yeah. in Paris. It was like a hundred thousand people or something. I mean, the, and there's polling for what it's worth that like the U.S. public also majority supports a ceasefire. You know, it's actually elected officials and like people in power who are really tailing the public and are being far less courageous than the average person on this. Um, and that also applies for like your union leadership, um, and you as a union member, I mean, the fact that very few people are willing to take this very firm stand on, you know, mass massacres going on right now. Um, there's, there is a role we can lead on this. Um, and I think that it's possible to shift this tide in this particular moment, especially. Um, and I just also want to say before we wrap up that I don't want to go without on this topic, go without mentioning the ILWU, which I mentioned dock workers have a history of refusing to handle Israeli cargo. Um, and also the United electrical workers, UE. These are both two like historically radical independent unions, um, also extremely hurt by the McCarthyist, you know, anti-communist purges that went on last century. Um, But you, we also, I think recently before this latest um, war, you know, had passed a a statement, a very strong statement um, in solidarity with Palestine. And so I just want to say both of those, if you're thinking about like, well, is it just these random Starbucks workers who are speaking out? Like there are plenty of models you can look at if you're thinking about like, hey, I wanna start talking to my coworkers or my union leadership or whoever, Um, I would encourage you to sort of look at UE and ILWU's kind of statements or actions on this um, as other models you can look at too. too.
2: I think that is a, a good place, Avini, to to wrap things up and leave it. I mean, I think that, you know, re- really, the, 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 there is so much happening uh, yes. in, in, so, in so many different places and so many different ways. And and I think it's really important as well. And this is one of the um, big reasons we want to talk to you, Alex, is that like understanding that just as, you know, saying it, you, it it's more powerful when you do it in a group rather than Individually, um, that also like all of these different movements have their intersections and need to be seen, uh, you know, in their intersection. It is not just a it is not just a labor movement of some disaffected workers over here and a uh, a, a movement and you know in support of. Um, Palestinians who are being genocided right over here right like no like these things are very much intertwined with each other they are often the same people who are on one hand yes
0: I often I'm always like it's the same yeah <laughs> it's the same
2: people who are <laughs> fighting their is, yeah. own fight while providing support to someone else fighting their fight right like um and and that is uh I think that is Really encouraging to see, uh, and it's, it's, it's necessary to see these connections because, um, you know, at, at the end of the day as well, like, you know, we talk about, Capital, um, like capital, sees the connections, and they are con- and they yes. are in relationship deeply with each other. Why would you have the Chamber of Commerce coming after Starbucks for you know because it's like they all because capital sees this as one big unit um, as yes. well that the that the settler colonial um, state that the uh, the export of of arms like all of this is connected in capitalism, and it means that the fights against capital, against genocide, against colonialism, against all oppression and domination everywhere also has to be connected with each other. And I I think your work on this, Alex, really, really helps highlight um, what is often, I think, a really um, kind of vulgar disconnection between like, you've got labor over here, class over here, identity over here. It's like, no, that, that's a really not, not only vulgar, but a counterproductive and, and a, a great way to actually undermine um, the, the, the things that we all want to fight for.
0: It also just leaves you missing what's going on in the world. Like you find yourself caught off guard when there's these coalitions, whether it's like workers in the United States who are building, you know, ties with Palestinian trade unions, or you're like, what is this? Writers against the war. And, you know, you don't understand things as they happen, um, because you really have to, I think, start with the reality on the ground and then build your kind of theories and conclusions from there. Um, so I think... I'm very heartened by, you know, I was looking at the the aerial footage of the giant Bay Ridge protest and there were lots of very visible UAW signs. Um, And I mean, I feel like, you know, that's just a random one protest or whatever, anecdotal. But like, to me, it's really remarkable. People feel very proud and open to say, I'm going to be on the right side of this and I'm going to do it openly as a union member here. Um, So it's encouraging. I hope everybody listening to this, you know, uh, things are very bad right now, but like, you know, people need your help. Um, and there are, there are people actually doing this and trying to, um, use this horrible moment to actually like shift the tide in, in a good direction. So I hope that is a, uh, my friend always says, he's like, Alex, you're the most pessimistic Person I know, so when you tell me hopeful things, it really actually is convincing. So I hope I did that here.
2: Uh. (laughs) Yeah, and and coming from this podcast as well, which is uh, not not exactly an optimistic podcast, but but and I will say, if if it requires speaking to the selfish motivations as well, there are people who need your help. But it's at some point, if not now, you will need other people's help. Yes, Um, and so a, a helping hand is always given in return. As well. Yeah. Um, and so it's
0: the beauty yeah. about the labor movement, nobody like at you can just call people up and say, I need, I need your help with this, whether it's like a resolution or a problem in your shop, and no one like charges you a bill for it or says no. Um, that's just the logic of solidarity. Um, and so I think it's a beautiful thing. Yeah.
2: Absolutely. And with that, um, Alex, thank you so much for for coming on. Um, We'll have a link to your your Jacobin profile so people can read your work and your Twitter. But is there anything else you want to direct people's attention to? No,
0: thanks so much for having me, guys.
2: Thanks for coming on thank you and everybody else of course can find us at patreon.com slash this machine kills for additional premium episodes every single week um but uh, until next time later adios, adios.